Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Can I do a Lindsay impression real quick? Please. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's the whole impression. I'm going to kill you. I'm Alex Higley. And I'm Lindsay Hunter. And, and I'm, I'm a writer. writer but... So Alex, before we get started with our guest today, we have exciting news, do we not? I think we might have exciting news, yeah. We have exciting news. Alex is offering his considerable talents um, in the sphere <laughs> of editing. Um, and I, I honestly can't think of anyone more thoughtful and more honest than Alex Higley, um, if you're looking for someone to give you some edits on something you're working on. Um, but Alex, Thanks, do you want to tell us a little bit about what you're hoping, what kinds of projects you're hoping to work on? Yeah. You know, I just, I had a slight change in how much time I had uh, with work and the kids. I just have a little bit more uh, breathing room and I thought it would be fun to do some manuscript consultations um, because I had a little bit more time. And so if anybody would be interested in working with me, uh, I would love to work on, novels collections of stories either way um probably just fiction is the only thing i could have any useful thoughts on but if (laughs) if if you're interested shoot me an email it's contact alex higley at gmail.com excellent whoever is lucky enough to work with you is in for a treat i would say thank you my friend hit him up and now on to our show Welcome to I'm a Writer But. Today we have Alana Massad, who is a queer Israeli-American writer of fiction, nonfiction, and criticism. Her work has appeared in The New Yorker, New York Times, LA Times, Washington Post, NPR, Story Quarterly, Tin House's Open Bar, 7x7, Catapult, BuzzFeed, and many more. She is the founder and host of The Other Stories, an interview podcast featuring fiction writers. A graduate of Sarah Lawrence College, she has received her master's in English from the University of Nebraska-Lincoln, where she is currently a doctoral student. She is the author of the novel, All My Mother's Lovers. Welcome, Alana. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. We're so excited to talk to you. Same here. What do you have to read? Uh, So I have a very short section from my novel, From All My Mother's Lovers, which is now out in paperback, which is exciting. Um, And it's from early in the book. it's uh so the the book opens with maggie's maggie's the main character and her mother iris dies um at the very opening of the book Mm -hmm. um and this is just after maggie gets home uh to oxnard california from where she lives in st louis missouri um and it's just her sort of in her childhood bedroom maggie sits in her childhood bedroom for a moment on the single bed her parents never agreed to graduate her out of she isn't out of breath but she feels she has to catch it She isn't dizzy, but she needs everything to stop spinning. She isn't jet lagged, has never been jet lagged, but she feels like daylight savings has just happened and that she's flown across the Atlantic to boot. Her room looks nothing like her anymore. It's a reflection of a past self. On the wall above the bed are taped up pictures of an androgynous Johnny Depp torn out of the teen magazines she would buy. Until recently, he was the one exception to her disinterest in men, but when she found out he was an abusive asshole, she had to let him go, not without regret. Beside Johnny are pictures of women, Uma Thurman and Kill Bill, Gwen Stefani in her most punk no-doubt phase, Janet Jackson pre-Justin Timberlake Super Bowl, There's a hole in the center of Gwen's picture from where the poster was ripped out of the magazine, cutting off her cocked hip. Don't you want to take these down already? Her mother had asked the last time Maggie visited. It's been long enough, almost a decade. 
At the time, Maggie had tightened up, had answered something sarcastic or glib or possibly mean. She can't remember, but she knows her mother thought it was silly that this room remain a shrine to her teenage self. Maggie didn't, didn't know how to explain that she found comfort in her unchanging room. She liked the teenager she'd been, the raw newness of discovering her desires, the things that made her angry, the causes she became passionate about. She doesn't think high school was her happiest time, and she's pretty suspicious of anyone who thinks it should be, but she knows she was more open then, more willing to extend herself. Everything else shifts, changes, moves, grows up, and dies, she thinks now. So why not keep one thing the same, especially if it isn't hurting anyone? She takes a deep breath and lets herself sink back, her conversed feet still on the floor. Just for a moment, she thinks, and shuts her eyes. Beautiful. Thank awesome. you. Thank you for reading. Um, I was so impressed as I was reading with how you captured the incredibly complex relationship between a mother and a daughter. Um, and, you know, I just wondered how you were able to do that, like what you were thinking as you, as you wrote and, and how you kept it honest and authentic. Thank you. Um, I'm, I'm glad that I, that, that, that it worked for you. <laughs> um, I, you know, it's not going to work for everyone. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I think I was trying to think, I was thinking a lot about relationships that are not my own with my mother, um, because my own mother and I are very close, uh, which is not what Maggie and Iris are. Uh, but I have a lot of friends who have very contentious relationships with their mothers. And I've always been fascinated by sort of complicated relationships between mothers and daughters and mothers and sons and just mothers in general. I think that I'm, I'm fascinated by the way that we sort of treat motherhood um, as mm. a position, as a, as a role, as mm. a thing that sort of seems to remove some part of personhood from a mother as opposed to add to it. Um, and so I was thinking a lot about sort of, okay, Iris and, and Maggie are both people, but Maggie sees her mother as a mother mm -hmm. and Iris sees herself as a person. Mm -hmm. um, but most children, I think for a long time, if not forever, think of their parents as parents, right? Mm -hmm. Not as full people, because it's very hard and scary to think of your parents as full people, because then you have to acknowledge how they don't know what the hell they're doing either. <laughs> um, so, you know, so I think I was thinking about sort of how, how the way they, they treat each other is going to be different because of the roles that they put on each other as opposed to seeing each other as people. Yeah. Which I think is often how we end up in conflict with other people in general, but especially sort of familial relationships. So, yeah, so I was just trying to think of sort of how, where are the places that they're missing each other? Where are the places where they're misunderstanding each other? Um, where are the places that are sort of, where there are rough edges? So uh, sort of where are the little earthquakes between them? Uh, and that's, I think, how I sort of managed to construct the relationship between them, really, is thinking about those points of rupture. Did you start there with an interest in exploring that relationship, those roles between the roles that a mother would play, the roles that a daughter would play within their life with each other? Or was it some, did you have the characters first and then kind of, you know, work backwards and, and, and add that texture? Cause it seems like such a rich place to start even without anything else. It seems like you legitimately could have started at that point. Yeah. I mean, I think that I, I didn't, I don't know that I put it into those words yet um, or like was aware exactly that that's what I was doing, but that was how it started. So like the, the first line, what, what is basically the first line of the book is also this line, the, the sort of the line that was kicking around my head that, that made me want to start figuring out who these characters were. And right at the start, I knew that it was about a, a daughter grieving her mother and then as I started writing about the daughter, I wanted to know more about the mother. And that's sort of how I figured out that it's not just about Maggie. It's not just about how she feels in a space of grief, but it's also about sort of their whole sort of long, the long time of their relationship that existed before that. Um, and I mean, I had, and then I realized that I had been writing already about mothers for years. Um, like lots of my short stories that I used to write because I seem to be incapable of writing short stories anymore for some reason. <laughs> um, but uh, for a long time when I was writing short stories, I, I wrote so many of them as being about like 
fucked up mothers in one way or another um, and sort of wanting to make space for that fuck, fucked upness um, and allow Mm -hmm. it. And that was sort of one of the ways, one of the things that I figured out early on in the book was that, um, or in writing this was that, oh, I, she's Maggie's going to discover all sorts of things about Iris that she thinks make her more fucked up in some ways, uh, less fucked up in other ways. Hmm. Yeah, the letters really allow for that. I mean, if if in a really just like base way, it's it's a way for her to see all the fucked up in this and all the other textures and layers to her mother. I mean, it it sounds like you really the the original conception or the conception you were able to have early on in drafting is really what you were able to accomplish. That, yeah, I mean, I think that early, it was pretty early that I figured out that that was what I wanted to sort of be the central tension in the book. Did Maggie come first to you or did Iris come first to you? Maggie came first because of that line, because I just knew that I wanted her to get the news while she was, you know, getting eaten out basically Mm -hmm. um and i just knew that that was like a really terrible moment to find out something like that (laughs) um but also i think because uh i'm i'm sort of fascinated by the ways in which sex and death are related um the sort of you know the sex drive and the death drive and that freudian kind of sense um but also just in the way that so often it feels like the way that we talk about sex or the, the the sort of cultural obsession with sex often has to do with the, a similar cultural obsession with youthfulness um, and with kind of this anti-death thing um, or whether it's actual life-giving or just sort of the vitality of youth that is having sex all of the time. Um, but also how that sort of removes the idea of sex being something that people can have for their entire lives, right? Like we never talk about sex mm. as it come, as it pertains to people later in their lives. Not never. We are now starting to, I feel, again, uh, in, in our culture sort of do that. Grace and Frankie did that very well. But, um, you know, it's it's not common that we talk about that. So just sort of where those things, again, sort of these these um, spaces where, where things are kind of uncomfortably rubbing up against each other, uh, like sex and death. Uh, and so, so Maggie came first with that line, but then I sort of figured out pretty quickly that, yeah, that I wanted to bring in Iris as well, because she would be a fascinating perspective to explore as well. And how long did you work on this book? Not very long. So, Hmm. uh, this is the fastest thing I've ever written, probably like the fastest long thing that I've ever written. Um, I would but not it was, guess that. I really, yeah, really? either. No, definitely not. <laughs> I don't. Yeah, I don't know why. Um, it's mysterious to me. I don't think it'll ever happen again. It's certainly not happening with the project I'm working on now. <laughs> um, and I've never written anything this quickly before. Um, I mean, I wrote like a NaNoWriMo, a full NaNoWriMo draft once, but it was so terrible. Um, <laughs> so we're not counting that. But I, I had written other long things before, you know, like I'd been out on submission to agents with three other books before this one. Um, uh-huh. And they all took much longer. Sometimes there were like years breaks in between one of them. Like I rewrote entirely like four or five different times. Oh, my God. Um. And with this one, I don't know, like once I got the concept, I started sort of free writing and then I, I figured out a plot really early on mm. and that really helped because I, I had never been a plot driven writer beforehand and I am not again now, but with <laughs> this book, I just somehow was like, oh my God, road trip. There's a road trip. I know what's going to happen now. And so then it, I mean, it from the beginning of drafting to sending it out to agents was just a little bit over a year, probably maybe a year and a half with the sort of like the the thinking about it portion before I started writing. It was way faster than anything I'd done before. And like I said, I don't think I will ever be able to do this again. I know there are writers who like literally write a book a year and I don't know how they do that. No kidding. (laughs) It just poured out of you. Did it, were you afraid? <laughs> like, I feel like, were you judgy as it was happening? Were you like, oh, no, 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 no. This isn't supposed to be this easy. Yes. I kept thinking that this, 
I mean, I still, to this day, there's a part of me that's sort of like, oh, it can't be a good, it can't be that good because it was too easy to write. Mm. Like, it just feels like that's wrong, you know, like it shouldn't have, it, it, it can't be good if it's easy, which I know is, you know, I talk about this in therapy. That's not something we should automatically assume, but, you know. <laughs> yeah, I know. I, I've been wanting to like, um, I want it to be true that it's okay to have a very fast complete draft mm -hmm. <laughs> because I, I work pretty fast. Um, but I torture myself. Like I torture myself about that, you know, like, Oh no, no. Like I didn't toil enough, but, right. but there is like a definite moment where you're like, well, I I'm done. This is done. Right. Like, did you have that with this book? I did. I mean, because I had sort of figured out I had figured out the plot more or less, you know, like there were, there were all sorts of mysteries along the way. Cause of course, you know, when you're writing that, that's what happens, but I had the sort of beats down mm. or I sort of, I had the ideas of like where, where she would go. I figured out pretty early, like, okay, the men are all going to be in California, except for this one guy who's going to be in Nevada. Cause that's not too far. I figured out like the driving times, you know, I yeah. wanted it to be within a, this complete sort of smallish unit of time. And I knew what I was writing towards, um, which also never really happened to me before, but I, I had mapped in my mind that scene with Peter at the end, between Maggie and her father at the end. I just, mm -hmm. I knew that that was the goal. Like that conversation was the goal wow. that I had to get to. And so that meant that I really did know when I was getting close, you know, because I was like, oh, okay, here's man number four. We're getting there, right? Um, and... And yeah, and like from sort of the, I remember there being this sort of feeling of rushing towards the end, like I was going downhill in, mm -hmm. you know, the last kind of, I don't know, probably 20,000 words, maybe mm -hmm. 15,000 words or so. I was like, oh, I'm almost there. I'm almost there. Like I can taste it, you know? Um, and that was wild uh, and very fun. And I hope I hope that experience happens again. That would be fun. To That's the dream. Again. That yeah. is the dream. <laughs> I've been having these these moments in this thing I'm writing right now where I'm like, so she's on a stage on a cruise ship with Paula Abdul. What the fuck? Oh, yeah. There you go. <laughs> Wait, like that's where you know you want her to get to? No, she is literally there. <laughs> oh, she's there in that moment that you're writing. Oh, that's yeah. great. Like, I want to like, know wait. how she got there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so I'm looking for, I'm, I'm, you know, looking for my downhill moment. <laughs> right, right, right. But that, I don't know. That sounds like a fun place along the way to be at. Yeah, yeah. we'll see. We'll see. <laughs> with the previous books that you had gone out on submission to agents with Alana, what mm -hmm. was, did it feel completely different than the, I mean, obviously you said the experience of drafting all my mother's lovers was much faster than those but was there were there other aspects to the drafting that you changed or was there a difference in approach otherwise that you felt allowed you to really go the distance with this one and ultimately to have the success that it did i don't know i mean i part of me wonders and i don't know whether this is me i mean okay so i think i'm of, i'm of two minds about this i think that Two of the books that I had sent out on submission before legitimately have still have potential, um, but they were sort of too weird and too, um, one was too linguistically weird, the other one was too conceptually weird uh, to sort of sell, which was what a lot of, a lot of what I heard from agents, the ones who mm -hmm. sort of did ask for the draft, who did, uh, who did ask for the manuscript, who did read it, were sort of like, ah, oh, the writing is nice, but I don't have any idea what to do with this, you know? Mm -hmm. um, with the other one, uh, with the third one that I had sent out, I think that it just it just wasn't put together right. That's the one that I sort of rewrote many times, and I think that just when I pull things apart that way and try to put them back together, I'm not I'm not sure that that's I'm not sure that works for me as a writer. Right. I know that a lot of people are super capable of doing that. Um, I just not I'm not sure that I am. Uh, but with this one, part of what made me sort of feel like, oh, this is the one. This is the one that this is going to happen with was because the concept was so commercial and I don't mean that in a bad way or in a judgmental right. way I just mean that as like it just was you know like it was something where I had a clear like here's my clear log line here's my like it's this meets this for my pitch right and I had worked for an agent for years and so I also sort of knew what what 
the way that people wanted queries to look by then. Um, I knew the way my boss wanted queries to look. I knew the way I as the assistant person like needed queries to look. I knew how my friends who were assistants or like people that I knew who were agents seemed to want queries to look. And so I also just knew how to tailor the shit out of that query letter, you know, um, just because I'd had so much practice reading other people's. Were you doing that work while you were drafting All My Mother's Lovers or was that work that came a little bit earlier when you were working on the previous novels? What what, what kind of overlap did your, or are you still, you're not, are you still doing that work? I'm not even no, sure. No, no, I'm not. I, okay. I mean, I'm, I still occasionally freelance for that agent doing some edit, editing work for her, but um, I, no, I was, I was probably, let's see. So I, I drafted this book during my first year of my PhD program and I was working, uh, with her sort of through the first half of that year, but I don't think I really started working on the book until the second semester. So probably just missed each other sort of. Um, but yeah, I had been working on some of the other books while I was working for her. And like, I knew that they weren't, you know, I knew that it wasn't the, the commercial thing that people wanted, but you know, I mean, I was like 25 and I thought, well, I'm maybe, maybe I'll just fall for the right one. Or, or maybe there was, some part of me that was like, well, it's clearly brilliant. And so someone will pick up on it. <laughs> um, uh, but, but it's, it didn't, no one did. And that's okay. <laughs> yeah. Say, say more about that. I, well, I mean, I think, I think that there's this weird thing that I suspect both of you. And I think a lot of writers would, would relate to is that on the one hand, you have like this truly painful, torturous self-doubt yes. this belief that like you are you can't be a good writer everyone who's told you you're a good writer has been lying to you to make you <laughs> feel like you're you know just either so they wouldn't have to tell you the truth or so that they could just spare your feelings or so they didn't have to deal with you having a meltdown about them telling you the truth you know like you you invent all sorts of reasons in your head for why you're actually a terrible writer um or you're not writing enough or you're not writing the right way but then there's a part a small part of you that like has to believe that you are the best fucking thing ever or else, you know, you would never write again. Um, I mean, it may be not the best ever, but like there's a part of you that believes like that, that it's worth it and that you are worth it and that the writing that you're creating, maybe not you, at least I feel very divorced from my writing a lot of the time. Um, but, you know, it, there's, there's that part that knows that this is worthwhile and that you are talented and that you need to do this and that, other people will actually enjoy reading this because if you didn't have that at all, you wouldn't keep going through the sort of morass of what it means to try to be a writer in 21st century, you know, late capitalism, neoliberal, <laughs> et cetera, et cetera, you know, in this sort of this tragic world we live in, like, why do any of us do this? Right? Like there's some part that feels like it's worth it. And so I think, you know, with some of those earlier things that I wrote that were sort of experimental or I was like trying to go for something really strange that I really believed in, there was a part of me that still believes in those things. And I had to believe them at the time, but there's a part of me that also looks back and is like, ah, you were just, <laughs> you were so like, you were so naive and you thought that like people gave a shit about your weird little experiments. <laughs> I know. I, I swear I have some, some books that I look back and I'm like, Oh, that was just like your little construction paper and your Elmer's glue. Right. Like, exactly. Mm. But like, you were really excited about <laughs> yes. them and like you, you constructed an entire, you know, critical theory around your construction <laughs> paper and your Elmer's glue because yeah. you just explained how it was brilliant to yourself, you know? It was meaningful to me. Mm -hmm. That's right. Exactly. Can you talk about what it was like sort of from selling the book to basically right now to put a book out? Because I, I know I ask that a lot of people, but I think that's something that a lot of unpublished authors are really curious about. And I think um, there's a lot of misconceptions about it and, there, and everyone's experience is different. So I would just love to hear your your experience. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that it's a strange one. I mean, not not unique to me, um, strange to our time, because I had like, you know, a pandemic book, right? Um, which is just a slightly different reality than I think some authors 
go through. Um, the process was also sort of very freakishly fast in my case. And I, I know it was freakishly fast because as I said, I, I had worked for an agent and I knew how slow the process of publication usually is, you know, um, but between sort of from, from finding an agent, which also happened freakishly fast to selling it was like three months, two and a half months. My and God. then I know, I know it was very strange. Um, but also he sent it out, I think to 17 editors, right? Like, you know, they send out a big first batch a lot of the time. Um, and within a week we had gotten 15 rejections. Oh my gosh. Oh. So it was also like everyone read it really fast and decided really quickly that it was not for them. Um, wow. so the, I mean, all of this was like, I don't know why, I don't know how, uh, part of me is like, oh, well maybe it was because you were worked so hard for like eight years before this happened or nearly a decade before you actually sold it. And so like the universe was just speeding things up for you. And then I, know that that's not true because many people you know toil for 10 15 20 years before they have a book come out so no (laughs) unfortunately not Uh, it was just weird strange luck um and then because they wanted it to come out near pride month and near mother's day because of the title and because it's about a queer woman um it was i think bought in like march uh maybe april and then it came out like a year and a month later, which is also oh. freakishly fast. Yeah. But my editor and I were like, well, let's try. And then we just sort of worked really quickly and I made sure to meet my deadlines very heartily, uh, obsessively, perhaps. <laughs> I know it was very weird. I mean, and that is abnormal. Like to any listeners out there, it usually takes between a year and a half to three years, you know, the, from the moment that you sell the book. Yeah. And then it's like, you get asked questions about it and you're like, what? That was like two books ago. Like, yes. I, I have no idea what I was doing, what I meant. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Well, how like psychologically this past year, like having your book out and having to endure people reading it, and <laughs> reacting to it, <laughs> you know, like what, what was that like? I don't know who said this, um, but someone said to me, and I think might've said it more broadly than Timmy, I might've heard it on something. Maybe it was a teacher. I wish I knew who said it, but someone said that uh, publishing is the exact opposite of writing. Uh, Mm, And I find that to be very true um, because you're doing anything but writing, right? When you're doing the publication process, even though you might actually be writing a lot, like you might be writing responses to interviewers, or you might be working on jacket copy or you know, doing the silly author questionnaire thing that you have to do or writing the worst, emails. The worst. Yes. So <laughs> strange. Uh, and, and just sort of bizarre. Cause again, yeah, it's interrogating you about sort of the things that you thought and, and believed and tries to get you to like market your work somehow or to make, to make bits of yourself marketable, which is like yes. not the point of writing. Fiction. Yes. Oh, <laughs> this is like um, therapy for me. It, right. It's very weird. Um, so I, I mean, I think it was weird for all sorts of reasons. It was weird because I was already, um, like when the pandemic started, I, it, you know, or I mean, not when it started, but when it was declared a pandemic in, I think, March of 2020, um, I had like a party planned, not planned fully, but you know, I was supposed to be having my launch at the Strand in New York and I was oh so excited, gosh. right? I mean, I was oh. so excited and like, Jeez. You know, I have a lot of friends in New York, so I was really excited to get to celebrate with a lot of my friends. My mom was going to fly out. And I had a lot of friends who were going, oh, but, you know, that's in May. So, yeah. mm-hmm. and I was like, oh, no, like I, I mourned way before it was officially canceled because I, I am a pessimist. And so I saw the way the wind was blowing and I was like, there's no way this is going to be over by May. Like that, that's not how this kind of stuff works. Um so I think I was really sad about it for a while, but then my friends in Nebraska managed to make my actual launch day really fun. And like, mm-hmm. I did a virtual event with a strand and I did a virtual event with McNally Jackson. And so those, those made me feel like, oh, you know, I'm really, this is really real in those moments of being in 
those Zoom rooms doing that, right? Um, but I think sort of, at least for me, uh, and maybe for other people too, the minute I'm not like actively sort of talking to other people about the fact that, oh, yes, this is my book. And I wrote a book. It's like, oh, what? I have a book. Yeah. Huh. Yeah. It like, it's Ugh. not something that's at the top of your mind all the time. You're thinking about the everything else in your life and also about how you should be writing or you want to be writing or you're thinking about the next book. Like you're not thinking, oh, I'm a published author. Like you're not walking around thinking that all day long, you know. Um, you're not. And mostly just, I am. I mean, maybe some days, you know, I'm not. Okay. No, fair. no, I'm not. I'm not. <laughs> Uh, so, you know, it, it mostly just feels like the same as everything felt before I was a published author. Yeah, I think sense. it does. And I think that's, that's something that is hard to accept, you know, mm -hmm. like it does feel like a groundbreaking achievement. And it is, you know, like it's, it is a miracle to get a book published and that is becoming yeah. more and more true. Mm -hmm. And yet you still have to wake up and do the work and feed yourself and mm -hmm. think your thoughts and live your life and deal with your family. And, you know, like, and it's, mm -hmm. it feels like it should change something, but it doesn't really. It and I really think doesn't. down the line, it's something you can feel really proud of and, and, you know, like, and, and you can hold it and, and just think of the work that went into it because it's, you've got some distance from it, but in the, you know, in that immediate time afterward, um, I know for me and maybe for you, like it, it, it does feel like, wait a minute, like, like, shouldn't people be stopping me on the street to be like, right. Hey, you had a book, <laughs> you know? Well, I think it's partially because as readers or I mean, yeah. maybe this is just for me, but like, as a reader, I think of my favorite authors as, you know, like these gods, these heroes, these oh, like incredible people who are able to make worlds appear in my head or able to like make me feel things or able to transport me into lives I will never live, right? It seems like this miraculous, amazing thing. But when you're the person doing it, it might feel miraculous and amazing sometimes within the process, sometimes thinking back on it, but like, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm most of the time you're not going to be like you you're not surrounded by your best readers all day long who right. can remind you how amazing it is that you can do this thing right exactly like you know like my kids are still going to be like mom get me milk right. and i can't be like excuse me um didn't you see what uh you know this blurb said on the back of it you know exactly right 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 try that tomorrow lindsay see how it goes over just you know i will try no my my oldest is like uh like Mo Willems has awards on his book. Like, why don't you have, like, did you not win any awards? Shade. Mom, and I have to be like, no, but it's still a perfectly fine career. You know? <laughs> oh my goodness. Yes. Like if your kids are, are also just speaking the little voice in your head that's saying, but you didn't win any awards. Exactly. Exactly. God. I know. Oh my God. I remember my first novel was Ugly Girls. And it's like, it's, it's, I love it. But I remember expecting like something like that. And I look back now and I'm like, what the hell was I thinking? Like, <laughs> what was I thinking? I was just in this uh, like cloud world, you know, like you just, you learn as you go. Yeah. And I think again, it's like that, that hubris that we have to have in order to survive publishing a book yes. once and then trying to do it again. And that trying to get to there. Yeah. And the innocence. Absolutely. I think, I think those together can be deadly sometimes. Yes. <laughs> <Our egos. laughs> well, you said you're, you're writing something now and you're doing some research as well. Yes. What are um, you doing? Yeah. Uh, I'm, well, I'm trying to write another book. Um, it's also will be my dissertation for my, um, for my PhD, hopefully. So like I have two, two reasons to sort of try to actually finish it and keep going. Um, yeah, and I'm doing a lot of research about the 50s and 60s. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm making the mistake of writing somewhat about the pandemic, which I don't know, I'm hopeful that sort of if it does get sold, that by the time it comes out, it won't feel too soon mm -hmm. anymore by then. Uh, mm -hmm. But who knows, <laughs> it might just feel like, oh, still, like this is just a reflection of our new reality, who knows. Um, yeah, and uh, it's it's weirder uh, than my first book. I'm going back to some of my weirder impulses in terms of like points of view and 
and voice and stuff. Uh, and we'll see what what happens. I'm I'm still sort of in the muddling through and trying to figure out if it's worth it. Um, I mean, it it is it is it is worth it. It has to be worth it because I'm already like forty thousand words in, so I can't I can't oh, turn yeah. back now. No, um, you can't. But I'm in the middle, um, and I hate the middle. Mm-hmm. I yeah, hate writing the middle. Yeah. It's the hardest. Do you part. enjoy re- the research? Is the research fun for you, or is it something that you're like, ah, I just want to get back to sentences? I. It depends on the day. <laughs> like some yeah. days the research is really fun and some days it's so overwhelming and I feel like I have to research too much and like I'll never get back to the writing. Um, so it's a sort of balancing act because I can also disappear in the research, which is why I sort of very deliberately after about six months of just sort of telling myself I was doing research, I was like, okay, you have to stop and actually start writing because if you keep just reading books occasionally and like watching movies and telling yourself you're doing research, <laughs> you will never write. So yeah. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, it can be painful to get back in. Yes. It's, I mean, it's hard. It's weird. Was it something that you were working on while you were also like doing events for the, for all my mother's lovers? Not quite, but okay. al- almost like I started developing the idea around like pretty soon after the book came out. Um, and I started having, you know, how like, well, I don't, I mean, I don't know if everyone works this way. Obviously all writers work very differently. Um, but for me, at least I, I seem to sort of have something where there's an idea that just stays around my head and kind of, I, I can't write it yet. I can't even talk about it yet. I just get really interested in it and I think about it and I think about things that are adjacent to it. Um, and so for this, it was sort of like the alien abduction phenomenon. I just mm. was thinking about it a whole lot and like listening to other podcasts about it and then thinking about why were people abducted? Was it the cold war? Is that like why people kept having abduction experiences? Was it, were people seeing UFOs because they were like imagining the danger from afar. Uh, I mean, in this country anyway. Right. Um, Right. And yeah. And I just sort of circled this topic for a while and sort of slowly allowed myself to genuinely become interested in UFO things without making fun of myself uh, and apologizing (laughs) for it all the time. Um, No, they're real. Okay. (laughs) They are real. I mean, the government has confirmed that, which, you yes. know, of course, which should make us all very, very suspicious because the government does not. I mean, on the one hand, governments tend to be very, very uh, inept and we probably ascribe a lot more meaning to them than they actually have. Right. But uh, but I do think that it's suspicious somewhat that they just said that they don't know at all without sort of any theories but My, yes, but they're real. There's something out there. I thought they were just saying that so Definitely. that they could um, throw a whole bunch more money at NASA and we'd all be like, okay. But, but maybe not. Like, didn't we all want NASA to do stuff anyway? Like, I would vastly prefer NASA to do things than freaking Jeff Bezos going to space. That's true. That's true. That's Have you seen that true. movie, um, The Vast of Night? No. Okay, it's, it's set in the title. Fifth- it is so it is such a good movie it's set in the 50s so around the time that you're researching and it's about alien (gasps) i I won't say much more but it it, but it's it's great it is oh the vast of night okay i'm I'm putting that on my list now i'm going to send a text to my partner so that we can put that on our like movie list it is so so good thank you for the recommendation sure you mentioned that you're getting weird with this project was that like a conscious decision or was it what this project required i never know because part of me always wonders like am i am i playing with weird stuff because it makes me feel like the book is smarter or something oh and that's such an honest answer yeah (laughs) well i love that answer i think it's because i i sort of I don't know. I mean, I I started discovering experimental fiction when I was in college. And like, I, I studied with David Hollander at Sarah Lawrence. I had one class with him and he encouraged a lot of play in our writing. And he encouraged a lot of like, just try things out, do weird stuff, use, um, you know, use like conceits and use uh boundaries that you know, like have to write within in order to make something feel weird, right? Like, 
like one of my favorite exercises that I still give to my own students when I teach is uh, write a 200 word story that only uses 50 different words. Amazing. Like one of my favorite stories that I've ever written that ended up being much longer than that, but it, it started from that, from just that idea and like that repetition and what that makes you sort of focus on. Right. Um, But I started really getting into experimental fiction in college. And I think part of, I I think at the time, part of it was like, oh, this is really smart. This is really like sophisticated, you know? Um, And so (laughs) I'm constantly sort of questioning myself now. Like, am I trying to write this way because I feel like there's some kind of status to it? And I think that I've come to the position or Maybe I'm trying to convince myself of this uh, because I'm going to be writing an entire essay for like part of my PhD uh, comprehensive exams about this. Um, so, you know, I'm, I'm really putting in a lot of effort to convince myself of this. That the, reason, <laughs> the reason that I like it is just because I really enjoy seeing the seams of storytelling and wow. seeing writers sort of play with the seams and allow those seams to show, which experimental fiction often does, right? Like it often is purposefully playing with some kind of, uh, you know, um, structure that is very clearly structured that way, or it's trying to mess up a structure, uh, or it's trying to make you feel, um, you know, frustrated with like the sort of mysteriousness of it, or, or it's trying to get you to engage with the journey rather than the plot with it's trying, it's asking you to engage with the language rather than a plot or a character. And there's just sort of a lot of ways into it that aren't sort of, I'm just reading for the story. And I love reading for the story. I absolutely do. But I also really enjoy sort of thinking about the ways that stories are put together and why they're put together these ways. Um, and so I think I think that also what I love about experimental fiction and about sort of fiction that plays with these things is that I find that it sort of is queering a kind of particular mode that is very, you know, like, here's a plot that goes from A to B to C to D. It's sort of saying, no, no, let's let's go in circles. Let's take a detour up a mountain. Let's, you know, let's just jump around in A and just like jump on A a lot without ever going <laughs> to anywhere else. Let's just pogo stick this story. Um, and it's just doing like other things that are refusing to sort of take a normative, whatever that might mean, kind of route to tell a story or evoke a feeling or something. Um, So yeah, so that's, I think, why I really enjoy it. And so I I think I'm allowing myself to try to, to play with this weirdness again, in a way that I sort of tried to refrain from when I wrote All My Mother's Lovers. It sounds like you are excited about the notion of the reader being a participant, or even um, like more than that, like meeting you more than halfway, like sort of. I, I love the way you put that. I never thought about that before, but now yeah. I'm going to think about that a lot. <laughs> yeah, because it, like they get to play in their own way and they get to take everything that they have to try to figure out, you know, the game or the, the you know, like the the structure or what they're supposed to be doing. Um, and so it, it makes it alive in a different way for different readers, right? Like, yeah, yeah. And I and I know that not all readers like that, right? Like, and that's perfectly okay. They want I mean, answers and, is, and satisfaction and all that. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. But but lots of readers don't. <laughs> right, right, right. And I think, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Alex. Oh, I was just going to say what I loved about that answer, Alana, is from a teaching perspective, as you were saying, bringing that approach of, of boundaries or prompts or limitations into the classroom it's, it's really an inclusive act. And I remember being so resistant to prompts or any, anything like that as like a young writer thinking that it was a less honest approach and Mm. thinking that I had to, you know, come up with something whole cloth and really, really work for it. And, you know, be some kind of genius idea that I came with up up with, you know, late at night or something. And I was so resistant to, you know, okay, make sure the first sentence has the word red in it. Uh, Let's get uh, a blimp in the third sentence and just see what happens, guys. (laughs) And then, but then, you know, the result of those 
of those prompts or boundaries, like you were saying, it can be so incredibly eye-opening as a writer, realizing the limitations you were putting on yourself by, by thinking you didn't have limitations and working within a narrow vein it, 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 that, that sometimes a wide open field is, is the most narrow because you have nowhere to step. You don't know what you're doing. And I, I love that approach. I, I think that um, as you were saying, it is however you choose to understand it as being a step away from the normative, it, it's so powerful. And I also do think that like, you know, there in some ways are only so many stories, right? And we're all always cribbing from other stories. We're all always taking inspiration from other stories. We're all, you know, I mean, like none of us are fully inventing anything and that's fine. And I think it's actually kind of magical to be like, okay, I know I'm not inventing anything, but let me just play around and see what happens. And it might surprise me because I'm also used to thinking that like, I can only tell a story in this particular way. And maybe I'll show myself that I can tell it in a different way or that I can tell a totally different story that I never thought I could or would tell. Yeah, I keep thinking about how Matt Salis is, is trying to talk about how you have to, like these traditional narrative structures that we that we've been all, all been taught, you know, like, um, and, you know, thankfully, I think a lot of us have also dipped our toe into the experimental and, um, but you have to take into account that like, that's traditional to a single culture, right? Like you have to think about like how other cultures and other people with different backgrounds are going to approach narrative. And, you know, like if you can break out of that in any way that it just, you know, it's like you're saying, Alex, like it becomes more inclusive, becomes mm-hmm. almost like come with me, you know? Yeah, right. Let's figure this out together. Yeah. And I mean, it, and it is also doing something different, right? Like w- what we're calling the sort of quote unquote traditional story, like there's a place for that. And I think many, many, many people, including myself, love reading for the for the way that those stories are being told. So it's, it's sort sure. of like it's not an instead of, it's a just in addition to. Well, yeah, you, if, if you're going to experiment, you have to know what you're experimenting with, right? <laughs> right, right, exactly. You have to know the rules before you can break them, which yeah. I mean, is also, I think, not necessarily true, probably, right, because, right. but it's it's an approach that I think many people do end up taking because we're so often taught the rules first. And that's what gets published a lot, yes. you know, like that's, um, I mean, Alex and I talk about this a lot, like, we love books that establish their own rules as you're reading them, and you have to learn those rules. Yes. Um, and that's just exciting. That's just so exciting. You know, it, it, it becomes so immersive and playful and wild. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, and, and satisfying and such a, in a totally different way than like a plot satisfaction would be, but so satisfying to sort of figure out. I mean, this is why I also like puzzly TV shows, mm-hmm. you know, like I loved Westworld. I mean, until the like, the latest season, which was like, eh. but uh, I really love <laughs> a lot of sort of TV shows that, that play with storytelling structures and time and, you know, expectations because because there is something really satisfying about trying to figure out that puzzle of like, how are you telling the story and why are you telling it this way? Yeah. It's um, yeah. I think about that a lot because, because there are so many avenues in publishing, but there is also the main avenue, right? Like, uh-huh. <laughs> and so I guess you just have to, and it's, it, you know, it's like what you're saying. It's like, it, it might change from every project, you know, mm-hmm. like, and it's just cool that you're, you know, like you're open to that and you're following it, you know? I, it's terrifying. I won't lie, but like, I, yeah, I have a yeah. crisis of confidence every other day where I'm like, this is too weird. Why am I using this voice? Why am I trying to do this? <laughs> um, but then, you know, the next day comes and I decide to try continuing to do it and see what happens. So and then you're just going to see what happens and then exactly. see what happens and then see what happens. <laughs> Which I feel like that is a lot of what writing is ultimately, it, it right? Is. It is. It is. One day there's Paul Abdul and you just have to go with it. Exactly. On a stage, <laughs> on a cruise. Uh, on that note, I would just want to thank you so much for coming on and thank you for reading yes, to us. Thank and you. thank you for, I mean, I feel 
like excited anew to 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 play with my writing after talking oh, about all good. this. Oh good. Oh good. And thank you both so much. Uh it's it's such an honor to be on this show. It is so cool and I'm so glad you started it. Oh, I was going to say I'm so sorry that we stole your idea because your podcast is this. <laughs> it's it, not really no and it's also i should have i should i need to take it off of my website because i retired it i, I ran it for five and a half years and then it was finally time yeah i i think so <laughs> oh my god it's amazing i know it was like oh yeah. okay so they read their fiction and then they have an interview oh my god alex and i <laughs> stole this oh my god. I didn't invent it. Let's be real. I mean, I took yeah. it from the New Yorker radio yeah. hour, basically, and it was like, but what if they just read their own? Yeah, and it's and it's you know, and we put music in it. That was my big invention. It was like oh. getting my partner to write a bunch of music every single week. Oh my god. <laughs> well, we apologize, but also no, we're glad that all. you came on. Yes, and I'm glad that you're doing this. Thank you. Thank you. And we thank will see you. you. Um, everyone go buy All My Mother's Lovers. It's out in paperback. So it's so affordable. And, and it is the best uh, version of, you know, the, it's the best format, as we all know, of paper books. It's the best format. Carry it anywhere. Exactly. You know? Bend it. Yes. yes. You know, put it upside down. Wear uh, it. Not like face to, uh, uh, pages open. Yes. Indestructible. Exactly. Exactly. Yes. That was great. I that felt was really fun. So I, I'm serious, like talking about experimenting and experimental fiction and constraints and prompts. I love all that shit. Yeah. Unabashedly. Yeah. Did you always? I never knew about it until I went to grad until I went to grad school. And I took well, me um, yeah. I took a class with Matthew Goulish on constraints. And it was so fun. And I never looked back. They work. I took a class with John Keane. It was a similar thing. And the first thing I ever got published was a result of that. And I, I remember it like exploded my brain that I didn't have to know where I was going or, I mean, it sounds so stupid for so many of our listeners, I'm sure, because you're like, yeah, no shit, dumbass. But it, it really no, was like shocking to me. That is such a common thing. Cause you read the stories and the books that you love and it feels like they knew from the beginning, you know, like it feels like this right. was set in stone. They're just brilliant and it comes naturally. And maybe that does happen every once in a while, but it's like, you, you know, I spent way too much time convincing myself that that's how it was. And that I just was working too hard and that I'd never be all that good, you know? And then, yeah. And then like, hopefully you get liberated from that and you just decide to do the thing that you do. Right. <clears throat> And yeah, definitely constraints helped with that. So you what got you a tattoo to? today? I did. I got a tattoo. I got lots of tattoos today. <laughs> but yes. Um, How many tattoos would you say that you got today? 20. But they're also 20, tiny. 20? Maybe more. Tiny 20. Tiny nice. 20. Tiny 20. Tiny yeah, it was, 20. it was a great. I was very nervous because I had to go. It's the, it's, she's a tattoo artist and, a, and she's a lead singer in a band I really love called Dead. And I was really nervous because I had to go to her house, her apartment and be in her apartment, just me and her. And I was like, I'm going to say so many dumb things. Like I'm going to like, my stomach's going to make a weird noise. I'm going to freak her out because I love her band, <laughs> but it was so great. She was so wonderful. And we had a great conversation about like the creative life and how she balances what she calls her gifts. So her, her tattooing and her music and I don't know, I just felt like so happy to have had that experience um, and to let her just kind of like take control of what we were going to do on my arm. And I don't know, it was great. It's awesome. You can teach an old dog new tricks and you can tattoo an old 41-year-old lady. Sure. Sure. <laughs> I mean, we Emily, got living proof. And Emily Adrian also got a tattoo today. Holler, it's Emily. tattoo day. Holler, Emily. We'll be talking to her soon. Yes. Yours. Not soon enough, though. That's like in September. Um, yeah, she can come on twice. It's cool. Sure, sure, sure. And uh, yeah, I'm reading. Oh, my God, I'm reading the best book. Really? It's called The Comfort of Monsters. And it is. Um, I'm doing an event with her by Willa, Willa C. Richards. 
I don't know this book. Oh my God. It's so good. I'm doing an event with her on Thursday, July 29th through um, exile and bookville. And if you guys are interested, you can look at my Instagram. I've got the link there and I'll try to post about it on my other social media pages out yet. It is out and it is so good. It's about um, a, a woman whose sister goes missing in the summer that they caught Jeffrey Dahmer in Milwaukee. Oh, shit. Yeah. And you know, he killed boys and men. Um, so, so it's more about like her disappearance kind of going under the radar because they were, the city was so overcome with Jeffrey Dahmer. And then also about like how Jeffrey Dahmer has been, has turned into this like strangely heroic cult figure, you know, like people are obsessed with him and they want to know all about him. And God damn. when really it should be about the victims anyway, but the it's a novel and it's also from the point of view of a very unreliable narrator whose memory um, is extremely flawed. And so um, I don't know. It's very, and I'm, it's in. I'm sold. Oh yeah. You got to read it. I'm reading it directly after reading what happened to Paula, which is nonfiction about the murder of a woman in 1970 and how that kind of was brushed away. And so it's like, they're speaking to each other. Um, these books were like, it's weird that I read them back to back. Cause they have so many, like there was like the woman's sister was trying to find her in the real book in the nonfiction book and same in this book. Anyway, I'm really enjoying it. So I look forward to talking to her about that. It's July 29th. Cool. And Alex is going to start manuscript consultations. Sure. Sure. I think I, Oh my God, I'm reading a fucking crazy book. <laughs> Have you ever heard of the book letters to Wendy? Letters to Wendy. Who wrote it? Joe Wenderoth. No, I'm looking it up. Oh my God. My. <laughs> Why is it crazy? Well, it is. So the whole can, I've only read like 15 pages of this and I already know that I'm going to love it. It's insane. Oh my the whole God. Thi- oh, I just, I just read the Did synopsis. You- Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so the whole conceit is that he's writing the, the narrator is writing letters to the restaurant letters to the actual fictional Wendy of the Wendy's hamburger chain <laughs> on the like comment cards that they used to have at Wendy's and uh, it, it's it's the the action of the book if you could describe it that that is uh takes place in 1996 and it was published in 2000 so they actually did have comment cards back then but um it was it takes place in 96 and it was published in 2000 yeah that's so cool did he write anything after that yeah apparently this is like a well-known person and i just this is the first time Oops. i've ever heard of him but yeah i mean i think in like I think most of the other stuff is poetry. Um, yes. And this is like prose poemy. I'm not sure what it's actually, I don't know if it's, if, you know, when they uh, like online, if it's sold under fiction or prose poetry or what, whatever, but it's uh, totally vulgar and insane. And I love it. <laughs> yeah. It says he's an American writer, performer, teacher, and filmmaker, and he's published six books, four books of poetry, an epistola, an epistola, <laughs> an epistolary novel and a book of essays. And he curates the seizure state, which appears in the Brooklyn based magazine, gigantic. So he's, there you go. he's on fire. He's on fire. Okay. Joe Wenderoff. Okay. That's that, that book sounds so good. Yeah. It's very uh, up your alley. I mean, it's completely fucked, but it's, it's really good. Yes. Okay. I see a picture of him sitting next to Ronald McDonald. I'm in way in. I'm so in awesome. Uh, I think that's all I got. You got anything? Anything else good happen? I saw Space Jam, A New Legacy yesterday. Was it good? You know what? I am the target audience for that kind of content. (laughs) Because I was like giggling and loving it. (laughs) So, yeah, I loved it. It was great. Can you you share with our audience the uh, the line that you're your middle child delivered 20 minutes into the movie. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Well, cause so there was like a bunch of previews to start. And so he'd be like, is this space jam? And I'd be like, no, 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 this is a preview. So then space jam started. And I was like, look, it's space, the new space jam movie. And he's seen the first one. So I was like, yeah, look, there's LeBron as a boy, you know, he's talking to his mom. So like I had told him this was space jam. So 20 minutes goes by and he goes, he has to lean over my other kid to, to say this. Mom, mom, when does space jam start? <laughs> 
Uh, I love that. His brother was like, this is Space Jam, you idiot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but it was great. I recommend it. I'm going to see it. Yeah. There was Definitely. like moments specifically for like, our generation who love nostalgia throwbacks to like things we watched when we were kids. And I know you're younger than I am. I know, but like, um, like there's a big audience watching the big game at the end and it's filled with Warner brothers characters. So like there's gremlins there, there's the Jetsons, there's um, iron giant. There's just like everywhere you look, it's like, it was there Pennywise. Um, oh Jesus. Watching the game. So it was, yeah. Loved I love it. how you said, I love how you said, I know you're younger than me, as if I was going to stop you from talking and like <laughs> claim that we were different generations. Like that was important to me. Assume that we're the same generation. Oh my God. <laughs> um, anyway, that's it. Thanks for playing. That's it. Um, okay, I'll play again next week. Sure. Okay, sounds great. Bye. Okay, bye. I'm a Writer Butt is recorded by Alex Hickley and me, Lindsay Hunter, in our respective basements. Editing by Lindsay Hunter. Music by Max Loop. Yay!